Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Robert Colville, editor of CapEx, and today I'll be talking to Peter Oborn. Peter was recently named Columnist of the Year at the British Press Awards and is one of Fleet Street's most outspoken, most controversial, but also most principled writers. His books, The Rise of Political Lying and The Triumph of the Political Class, effectively predicted why so many people have become so angry with their leaders, both in Britain and elsewhere. We'll be talking about why he's so keen on Brexit, so keen to see the back of Blair and Cameron, and why he thinks people like me just don't understand the Muslim world. Yeah, I, I, um, I wrote two books uh, in the middle of the... Uh, about ten years ago, um, both of which have anticipated themes which... Uh, which are general today. One of the one of them was called the rise of political lying, uh, which I wrote in two thousand early two thousand and four, and it um, contains the phrase post truth environment. It pointed out that there was a new culture of uh, fabrication, um, and it, it's, I bought I linked it to uh, well it was linked to I showed how Blair and New Labour had uh, basically invented a new kind of truth, a new, new labour epistemology. I stole the phrase post-truth environment from Eric Alterman, who'd written a book called Why Presidents Lie. In other words, what I'm really trying to get at is that the, um, the idea that Trump is part of a new thing, uh, you know, that the Blair had done it 10 years ago with, and Clinton did, and George W. Bush uh, did, they, they would fabricate, invent um, but ten years ago, the the liberal media was collaborated with these lies. In particular, when it came to the Iraq War, and so the 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 destruction of the idea of a truth ethic was not has not been carried out by Trump and his appalling creatures, but by was done twelve years ago. They created that. They they created for fake news. But it's only now that Trump is doing it that the the left wing media is uh, is getting agitated. But surely the problem is much much more severe now, and you know because it's sort of coming from all sides. And, you know, anyone can create a, a falsehood. It's not just the the media which can do it. Any anyone can create a, a falsehood, which goes around the world. Yeah, all right. The what, there is a new thing, which is that social media is is propagating it. But the I mean, let's not forget that Blair Bush, endorsed by the British intelligence services and the um, CIA, invented a whole load of fabrications about um, 
Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction in order to cause the Iraq war. I mean, Trump's fabrications of how many people went to his inauguration ceremony or didn't, and then there's a whole load of people on both sides who, who, who create fake news around that. Uh, I'm a bit more relaxed, actually, about Trump being worried about <laughs> the size of the, the, the crowd at his inauguration ceremony than I am about the fact that the whole entire British political establishment pumped out lies connected with Iraq and loads of other things, by the way. There's a paradox here, isn't there? Because in your, in the second of your two books, um, which is about the, the political class, you articulate how the public is being distanced from politics by the fact that the people within politics are self-serving. How that you know they all sort of have more in common with each other than than with, with than with the voters. And what we've seen in many ways is the sort of the blowback against that. Yeah, when I was, what I became conscious of when I was a political correspondent of the Spectator about fifteen years ago is that you have a a new political a political class. It's replaced what my predecessor as political editor of the Spectator had had coined the, as the establishment, and a political class has arrived, had arrived, uh, and it police discourse, it. It was obvious that the media was part of the political class. They were sort of courtiers to the political establishment. And they had produced, created their own forms of dress, their own forms of language. Um, and in fact, they had merged. Uh, they had crashed the two politi- political parties had become identical, i.e. New Labour and the Conservatives under Blair and Cameron were the same party and they had the same doctrines. They had something called uh, modernization, which was explain what they did and what was virtuous. Um, uh, but it was it, it was the same thing. It was uh, they, they 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 had the same near conservative foreign policy. They had the same marketizing uh, domestic policy. Only the, the the differences were basically not between they they were the same thing. They they uh, they, they both of them targeted the uh, so the activists or the membership of their own parties. It was a they, they were hostile, and that's how they defined themselves was against the members of their own parties. Whether it was the sort of old trade old trade unionists in Labour, or whether it was the sort of retired colonels and sort of. Uh, of the Tories and uh, and and these, this modernising elite, they became a cross party. I mean, Mandelson and George Osborne, are, all intents and purposes, the same thing: manifestation of corporate power and influence. And they end up working together on the uh, Remain and the, yeah. the Stronger In campaign. Yeah, and Blair and Cameron are indistinguishable, and they've done exactly the same. They, they've also. Fascinating to see Cameron following. It's tragic as well seeing Blair and Osborne following the path of Mandelson and Blair after, after office. They see having been in office as a way of getting filthy rich very fast. And it's a very interesting. I travel around the uh, Middle East a lot, and uh, quite a leading politician said to me, "The difference between your country and mine is we get very rich while we're in office. You get very rich immediately after you leave office." The common thread between these two books, as you see it, is. Presumably, the fact that you, we don't get just get this political class, but that the political class lose their moral their moral compass, to use Gordon Brown's phrase, that they they are sort of willing to. They're, they're, what, they're, what they they're, did, they saw politics as a matter of technique. They were very hostile to voters and didn't approach them directly, but they used technical devices 
to do so, like focus groups and pollsters and um, and also particular forms of, of language. They believed that that the the doctrine was that you had you, you you must never speak out of turn. You must never say anything interesting. Uh, and that you you would be punished for 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 doing that by losing elections. They believed that Europe was a it was a non-starter uh, for for politicians to talk about. They believed that immigration they banned talk of immigration. Um, they 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 created a whole series of false dividing lines between the two major parties simply because there weren't any real ones. Uh, and therefore, they created this this enormous space outside uh, the two main political parties uh, for political discourse, uh, which was actually banned. And that's uh, hence Farage. Farage uh, was a manifestation of that. Has, in a way, has been Corbyn. Uh, that, but because it became obvious that they weren't speaking for the, probably the majority of voters. And the majority of political activists, uh, and, and this approach to life was endorsed and, and in fact, uh, p- policed by the mainstream press and by uh, by the BBC. The whole of the Westminster political establishment, the two main political parties, the Lib Dems, and indeed uh, the BBC, and the became sort of. Uh, seen as a blob at the centre which was uh, uh, an elite it's tragic, it was a denial of what politics is supposed to be and of course one of the things the main thing which we've seen for the last few years has been a, a, a gradual revolt against that So you'd argue that politics now is in a healthier place than it was? I don't know about that, I worry about that because it's certainly much more democratic I mean it's far more democratic because uh, politicians have been forced to take account of voters. But of course that brings with it uh, things which we all fear, which is, you know, know, sectarianism, division. Uh, And I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm frightened about what can come next, but it's far more democratic. So you voted leave no, yeah. and you were very sort of passionate about that but what was your sort of vision of that presumably it was the sort of the open global sort of engagement with our old old friends version rather no, than all the... I was my my uh, 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 there's a brilliant uh, essay by two political scientists Richard Katz and Peter Mayer which showed how the democratic system had been captured it was it's a th- it's, it's a very academic essay but it's brilliant how politics in Europe and now in Britain was was against the people not for it in other words democracies need to operate within nation states and the the European political idea has had disenfranchised the vast majority of, of, of voters uh, uh, in, in across Europe, not just in Britain. In, f- in fact, it was it's worse in Europe, and that's the uh, I voted for. That was the sole re- that was the main overriding reason why I voted the way I did, because Europe was a certainly an undemocratic organisation, arguably an anti-democratic 
organisation. But I have to. I mean, you do. If you look at the rise of Trump and uh, and the increase in r racism, and uh, you, I'm I'm scared by that. Even in the UK, I think I think even in the UK, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, we can get in. We've got to. I think we've got to reach a very important moment. Um, this, we're having this conversation uh, just after Mr. President Trump tried to ban lots of Muslims in the United States. And it's incredibly important that we in Britain stand up and say, look, that we are a society where everybody of every race and religion has equal rights and equal parts of this society. It's, I just, we can't go down that sort of Trump line and there are forces which will try and push us in that direction. One of the things which most fascinates me about you is that you are a man of extremely strong convictions. And one of these convictions is that the essentially Britain has been far too friendly to Israel and far too hostile to the Muslim world. Where does that come from? Yeah, I can't say, that. by the way, I don't say we're too friendly to Israel, but we are too friendly to the policies of Netanyahu and Likud uh, and we are, we don't criticise nearly enough the illegal occupation of the West Bank and the settlements. That's my. Mm. Uh, I support the uh, completely support re recognise Israel as a flourishing democratic state. That it's a marvellous thing, but we we mustn't be afraid to criticise. Well, I tell you exactly what it was actually. Um, I spent two weeks making a a film on the uh, on the West Bank. Where Peggy was there for about a week, and uh, every day it was about Tony Blair and his uh, ill-gotten gains after leaving office, and we were looking at what he was doing as, in his capacity as envoy for the quartet, and we're interviewing these various Palestinians who didn't actually weren't frankly obliging about him. But every morning, our fixer, uh, our Christian fixer, would come in and she'd say, "Well, you know, today." There's been an awful incident here where the where the settlers have come down from the hill and burnt the olive groves, and or they've poisoned wells, or they've done this. Or and so eventually, I said, "Look, next time you have something, I want to go and see it." And it really was a dreadful. Um, it turned out that the, the, the olive grove was still the, 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 it was still burning from the day before. Um, there was an old widow there, and the settlers had come down. And uh, and just burnt her olive grove, and uh, and um, she had nine sons, uh, and uh, and she couldn't explain why they'd done it. And so anyway, we arranged against. I said, "I'm going to go and talk to these settlers," and um, we eventually did. And uh, and they were, I mean, uh, and eventually they said, "Yeah, we did do that." And I said, "Why did you do that?" They couldn't actually even explain why they'd done it. So here you have a, an ancient village. Of a family which has owned, farmed the land for, I don't know, long time, and there's this sort of illegal bunch of people. Of basically, <laughs> she said they were all Russians. I don't know. Turned up ten years earlier, and now they're coming down from the hill and terrorising them with the support, more effectively, the support of the Israeli state because they're not being punished for it. Uh, and then uh, we went along and they poisoned the well. Again, water is a huge thing. And it's been, now I, and then I w we went to the checkpoints. It was a sort of, t you know, try being a Palestinian in, in West Bank. 
Now, that is what, that that experience knocked me out actually. Um, And I, and I do feel that this is a we we need to speak uh, much more forcefully about the. the so I know British British policy is great, by the way. We support the two state solution. We we are against the settlements. We we don't um, we're not angry enough about it. We don't talk about look. You, this is unacceptable. Hmm? Beyond that, you have a an interest in and concern for the the Muslim faith and for for Muslims in Britain. Well, after nine eleven. And particularly after seven uh, seven, I've, I've really got to under uh, understand, and I, and I I started to go into that, and I went and met Muslims and talked to them, and tried to make sense, and I realised I in, in, that there is a very false and damaging narrative about British Islam, about Islam generally, and about British Muslims that they somehow don't belong. In this country, a lot of quite respectable people say that, that Islam is incompatible with Western liberal democracy. That's an astonishing thing to say, but you'll find a lot of people on the right making that uh, argument. Uh, some of them make a slightly more sophisticated one that Islamism um, is what is incompatible. Uh, I started to read what is written about Islam, and a lot of it is false. Uh, it's fake, and I was very particularly the construction of counter-terrorism policy, and a whole new language to descri- effectively to describe Islam: Islamism, extremism, radicalization, radical. Uh, and each one of these words is a constructed word, which, in my view, is designed in order to uh, attack a community or a set of communities, the Muslim communities, and it's uh, and it's troubling. Um, by the way, I, I think it's really I've, I've travelled a lot in the Middle East and around the world. Britain is about as good a place as you can live if you're Muslim. I mean, uh, uh, but uh, it doesn't mean that um, it, it, it doesn't mean that there isn't a real problem about public discourse on, on Islam in this country. You personally are in a strange situation because you're a writer for the. The Daily Mail, previously the the Telegraph and the Spectator, and yet you, so on you on most things you are you are of the right, and yet on on the issue of Islam, which I I disagree with you on in quite a, quite a few respects, and especially your views on Syria. Um, you know, you are it's Syria isn't about Islam, though, is it? It's uh, you're on the no. funny enough, you're on the side of the radic- in Syria, you're on the side of Al Qaeda and. Uh, uh, and of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, it's very paradoxical. I'm on the side of the Christians and the Alawites well, well, and religious tolerance. We can all get a package to her from Bashar al-Assad and come back, come back saying it's all fine. You know, I, but, but I think no, you, I don't say. I've never said it's all fine. You know, I always remember you, 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 when we were at the Telegraph. You turn up in the Telegraph offices with these these thoroughly good chaps that you'd you, you'd come across. Who to you know too many of the same of the people around you would 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 be would be dangerous radicals. I think journalism is about being curious, and there are t- on, on all. This doesn't apply simply to this issue. It applies to every issue that you. There's a very easy constructed notion which everybody agrees and shares that that these people are awful because they, they wear beards or whatever it may be or they have outrageous views on Europe. And actually, if you go talk to them, there's another point of view. 
Now, um, uh, the difference you and I have, I think, over Islam, what I had with the, uh, with the and generally with the conservative right over Islam, is we both can agree that there is violence, there is Al Qaeda, ISIS, uh, very dangerous, unacceptable, violent, um, no place for them, need to be uh, combated. Where we disagree is is how the combat should go. Now, I I have travelled enormously in the Middle East and up and down Britain. It's very obvious to me that the vast majority of Muslims are wonderful, patriotic Britons. The right says because the, the, the organisations which are entirely peaceful uh, should be banned, or not necessarily banned, but kept out of British uh, public life because they are what are called non-violent extremists. I, that, it's not that they're going to block, drop a bomb anywhere or for it. It's they hold views which are unacceptable to the liberal consensus. And these people, they may wear the wrong sort of clothes or, I mean, they're defined in support in some elements of Sharia law or... Um, have rather backward, you know, they may have backward views about homosexuality, whatever it is. And these, these, these views are, it is judged at the moment that that makes them, they can't take a full role in British public life. And then they get slammed because they, in the press, if you read the writings of people I hugely admire, like Charles Moore, he muddles up Islamists and extremists and terrorists. They get, they get lumped as a threat to the world we're living in. Now, nothing of the sort. In fact, if you're telling devout Muslims that they are potentially violent, violent, they are, as Policy Exchange says, on the road to extremism and, and therefore to terrorism, you're telling them they're not part of Britain. Uh, and that's a terrible thing to do. It's absolutely wrong. I, it's, uh, it's why, by the way, Policy Exchange and, and those around them try to get Mrs. May, when she was Home Secretary, to produce a counter-extremism bill. It's, can't do it. I guarantee that bill won't happen. It's got no intellectual uh, coherence. It's been incredibly divisive and utterly pointless. The counter-argument to, to, to that is that, you know, is that the, the, the violent people you're talking about need... They, you know, they are fish that swim in a wider sea. That is I the mean, if you, if yeah. you, I mean, if you read about the... Um, the events in in Paris, the you know the, the attacks in Paris. It's really quite. It's really clear that there was a culture in which, you know, in which jihadism was not viewed. It was was viewed as a as a desirable end state. It was as you, an acceptable acceptable thing to do. Yeah, militant, violent jihad has got to be fought. Now, actually, the look at the attacks in France. These are kids who've come very recently. You know, you know, girls, drugs. You know, it's it's it, the evidence does not support you. The idea that violent jihad comes out of a pool of non-violent Muslims is very difficult. There's a lot of academic research which says that's not right. I'm not, it's not right at all. And actually, if you tell a whole community that it is potentially criminal and violent, you are not helping solve the situation you're making it much worse you're being much more you're being very divisive 
And it isn't my experience of Muslims at all that that's who they are. You were saying before we started recording that you're actually writing a book about this. I'm going to try and write a book. It's a very complicated book to write, which will attempt to show that, in fact, curiously enough, there is a remarkable similarity of vision between the neoconservatives and Al-Qaeda. But <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's, let's just wait for it. I mean, I'll just explain it. Both of them interpret Islam as a violent religion. Both of them are hostile to the rule of law. Both of them are contemptuous of people who are moderate. Uh, and both of them believe in a clash of civilizations. Uh, and they want to fight. They want their, their, and I, I rather feel... That the, that's the wrong way to go about things. But, I mean, who are you defining as, as neocons these days? I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's Michael Gove and the ghost yeah, of Paul well, Wolfowitz. Well, it's Michael, it's old Govey, and um, there's the ghost of Wolfowitz. There's Trump in his... I mean, although he's, he's very complicated because a lot, part, large parts of him aren't um, a non-interventionist. You've got uh, the neocons... Um, I, I, in Britain, Henry Jackson Society, Policy Exchange, Times Newspaper, Telegraph. I mean, it's it's quite it's a powerful lot. Um, it is interesting that the doctrine of intervention seems to have been hit on the head by um, uh, by uh, Trump and by May. But uh, the analysis of Islam is still. Um, very problematic. One of the things which Trump has done, which is inadvertently, didn't mean this to happen, a good thing, is that he's been he's made so many outrageous remarks about Islam and Muslims that he's suddenly generated a pro a pro Muslim sentiment. I don't know whether you've seen uh, the uh, they just had the latest opinion polls that since November 2015 approval ratings of Muslims in America have gone up from 45% to 70% yeah it's very interesting you see oddly enough Trump isn't doing much which Obama didn't do but because the uh, the liberal the liberals liked Obama they never criticised him when he sort of made it difficult for Iraqi Muslims to come to America and so on but because they very much dislike Trump, they are being holding him up to an entirely different set of standards than they held Obama. And this is a really good thing. We're having a proper debate now. We're suddenly having a debate about what about the vicious behavior towards Islam. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Muslims we've been seeing for such a long time. Changing the, the topic slightly, I mean, one thing which is emotional in this conversation is that you are a, a contrarian. That you, well, no, you, I'm not a contrarian at all. I simply try to make sense of the world as it is. And it is, I don't say, how can I take a different point of view? I mean, it it's trivialises what... No, I'm sorry, but what I mean is that you are, you are a man who is willing to defy the conventional wisdom in pursuit of what he believes is right or what he, yeah. he sees is right. Yes, I don't, I don't think that it's the job of a journalist to go around spouting what everybody else thinks. Just to, look, to try and examine it, that's what we are supposed to do, I think. To, to get all, all sort of uh, desert island discs, I mean, where do you think that comes from? Is there, is there a part of you which is attracted to causes which others aren't championing? Or to... Yes, I do think that's a little bit of that. There's a, my favourite definition Sorry, of we... journalism. Sorry. Yeah, he's pouring a glass of wine for me. That's lovely. Is <laughs> the job of a journalist is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I have to say, I quite like that definition. About three years ago, I uh, uh, it's a tangible thing. It's very nice in journalism if you can actually achieve something tangible. I had coffee with a man called Anas Altakriti, who's deeply disliked by all kinds of people. I think he's a very engaging, intelligent man. Anyway, he told me he's, he, he's engaged in um, uh, Muslim politics in this country, and he'd held his bank account closed for no reason. Just out of letter out of the blue, your bank account's closed. And he said it happened to quite a lot of other friends of his, somebody at the Finsbury Park Mosque. And they'd all just received a letter out of the blue from HSBC, your bank account's closed. No appeal, no explanation, that's it. He said, look... In modern Britain, in modern, at this day and age, you can't survive on a bank account. Anyway, I so, I so I read a piece about it, and uh, it, it duly uh, finished. I identified all these unfortunate people, all of them Muslim, who'd had their bank accounts closed. And the Daily Telegraph wouldn't run it, and it caused me, this isn't what the story, it caused me ultimately to leave the Telegraph, because I was so cross. But then I went to channel, Radio 4 came to me and said, do you want to make a radio documentary? He said, yes, about this. And in this radio documentary, we discovered, we've made some progress in discovering why. There is an organisation out there called Thompson Reuters World Check, which has a secret, had a confidential files, which li listed people as terrorists. Anyway, we exposed this. We showed this it happened, and the Finsbury Park Mosque um, and our various others sued Thompson Reuters as a result. And uh, this is going out in three weeks' time. I know that in day after tomorrow, Thompson Reuters World Church is going to make a statement in court apologising to Finsbury Park Mosque and paying ten thousand pounds 
for falsely de de defining them as, as a terrorist. And there's a wave of further challenges to Thomson Reuters' world check. Now, I haven't done much in this world, but f I feel I take a large part of the credit for the fact that a whole load of people slurred without their knowledge as being terrorists, having had their name cleared and their bank accounts come back. I'm proud of that. Isn't it true that 16 out of the last 17 years have been the hottest in the, in, on record? And if, if so, isn't that momentous? Far more important than terrorism or even the economy. And why aren't we really doing much more uh, to engage with climate change? And I think the right is, 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 uh, is, is, uh, got, is, is structurally in the wrong place, particularly the Conservatives. I think Prince Charles is very good on this because he's a real Conservative, you can tell, which is actually much more radical and subversive. But the, 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 power, the power groupies in, in right, in right, on, on the Tory right tend to be type climate change sceptical. And it's obvious that the big problem of this century will actually be climate change. And I mean, do you, I mean, do you think that there's an element of uh, of, of religious faith in this? That you you know you are a quite a, you know quite a moral person in in, in many ways. I mean, you're, you're married. You know, you're married to a vicar. Married right? to a vicar, and I, but I've, I've always been um, well for quite a long time. But I've been I'm a Christian basically. Um, but that doesn't. Um, but I'm an Anglican. Anglicans don't believe in God too much, do they? You know, they, they can... But um, what they believe in, the Anglican Church, comes out of the religious wars of the 16th century. And so it's a way... It's constructed as a way of, of keeping Catholics and, uh, and Protestants in the same organisation. It doesn't ask for windows into people's souls. I think that's Queen Elizabeth's mm. phrase. Um, it, it's about courtesy and tradition. It's like conservatism, in a way. I, for me, courtesy, tradition, uh, respect for others, tolerance. Uh, and it's also got an idea of nation around it. And the monarchy. It, it, it embodies institutions which we, we I think are very one of the reasons I'm very critical of neoconservatism I think it's been a disaster and it's been a disaster in Britain is that it is it's hostility to institutions it, it, and, and the rule of law those are the things which have made Britain work for 500 years it's the parliament, the rule of law British army and its reverence and, and tradition and anti-structures and that's uh, and the uh, and the neocons think they can come away and blow all that stuff away. Well, in the same way as Tony Blair sort of thought that you could all this stuff was terribly outdated and you can yeah. modernise it away. And he thought he could do, he did try to do that to Britain. So he's given us atrocities like the Supreme Court and the National Security Council and all these. Sort of pathetic. Well, that, was a, that was a uh, Cameron. Yeah, I know, but Cameron and Blair are the same. That they were the same thing. 
kind of these appalling imports from the United States. What, what what's wrong with British? Uh, the, the, you know, the cabinet under the cabinet committee, subcommittee on defence and foreign affairs. That's what it used. They changed its name to Cobra with lots of initials. I mean, and and then uh, that is um, that is uh, this this refusal to realise that Britain's rather unique and splendid. And how does this apply to your? view of economics because you start you actually started out as a uh, not just as a financial journalist but as a as a financier i didn't i didn't really i wasn't a financier well, you, worked, you, you worked in the city useless and yeah <laughs> and then i became a, a very good i was quite a good financial journalist not, not that good and uh, and yeah that was during the thatcher years and so it was quite an exciting time in the city my guru in those years was uh, oliver Lechman. I used to go to lunch and he'd explain how the world worked. Oliver. What happened to, whatever happened to... No, he's still absolutely fantastic. Uh, he explained to me the intellectual, the catastrophic contradictions embodied in the uh, single currency uh, in 1980, over lunch in 1988. So I never put a foot wrong on the issue of the euro after that. Where do you stand on, on, sort of, on the, the economy at the moment? It does scare the life out of me, actually. I think that the uh, level of debt, you know, the idea that you're heading heading off towards two trillion or something, there's clearly going to be problems adapting to the post-Brexit situation. Um, but I think mainly it's the and the in the Europe, the, the there's going to be a the euro doesn't work and it's going to fail. And of course, the de- indebtedness is a problem uh, across the world. Meanwhile, President Trump wants it seems to want a trade war with China. Uh, and I do, uh, the, the, my, this is a big thought I have, that at the moment we can probably manage these sectarian, the growing divisions. But if we were to have a, 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 f- a full-scale recession, which is sort of on the cards, but also the level of global indebtedness is enormous, then you can, if you did have a return to uh, mass unemployment, and then, then I think in America, in Britain, in Europe, which has already got mass unemployment, uh, then I think you can, that is when things can become very serious in terms of political order, social order, sectarian divisions and so on. So how, what, I mean, what would you do to fix that? I'm sorry, I'm not... <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not um, Nigel Lawson, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think that I think Mrs. Bay's been quite sensible. I don't think you can go on spending. Um, I think we're doing some of the right things. But it's, it strikes me that your quite a lot of your policy prescriptions do have that sort of moral component. You know, when you talk about about debt, it's not just the sort of economic effects of it. It's the idea of, you know, of, of living beyond your means. And similarly, you know, what offends you about politicians ultimately is their, their moral behaviour. You know, the, the, the rise of political lying, you have, a, you, know, you have a very basic feeling that people shouldn't lie and that people should behave decently to each other. Well, I don't think that's a particularly outrageous thing to think. No, but, um, you, but you seem to feel it more strongly... To the point of well, yes, I tell you what annoyed me about my colleagues in the parliamentary lobby when I was a uh, lobby reporter was they saw politics and then interpreted it and reported it as a matter of t- 
technique. Who's up, who's down, and isn't this person clever? So Mandelson was reported as being this great, brilliant person, worshipped everywhere, and Campbell for a long, Alistair Campbell for a long time was revered. If you look at politics as more than just a matter of technique and who's up and down, you think, how are they actually... What I started to do was look behind this. What are they actually doing? Uh, and they're, they're, they're using deceit as a method of, of, of staying in power and of winning political battles. And also, uh, and going to war. I mean, this really knocked me for six when we realised that we had uh, been told a barrage of untruths uh, in order to justify the invasion of Iraq. It, it was the, that was the thing which completely changed me as a political a journalist. You spoke earlier about big lies and little lies. Are there sort of particular examples, or was it just a, a sort of culture of not telling the truth unless it served your purposes? The way I put it is this. They change the idea of truth. They, they, they moved away from Anglo-Saxon empiricism, which is what I'd been uh, brought up on, and turned truth into a manifestation of power, i.e. truth wasn't something which existed independently out there, which could be ascertained. It was something which was owned by political parties. That's what New Labour did. So truth was what New Labour said was the truth. Tr same with Trump and also his opponents. But it's the same with uh, George Bush. Uh, you know, we, what was it, that line? We, we, we make the, by our actions, we, we make the world. But yeah, then that's, that was a really interesting neoconservative idea that you create the truth. And, and there's a fascinating quote from Mandelson, which I discovered. He said, my job is to create the truth. Uh, which is an amazing thing to say. I tried to examine the philosophical basis for that uh, remark, and it takes you back to certain things, postmodernism, which denied the it's a wretched uh, notion, which respectable, far too many respectable academics have got themselves involved with, that the truth is simply what you anybody says it is. You know, i.e., you know, the people when Galileo said the well, went around the sun and the Catholic Church said it didn't. I mean, they're both equally, uh, you know, I mean, it, it takes you into uh, weird places, that, that doctrine. But it legitimised a lot of what uh, New Labour did. And now what Trump is doing is a postmodern uh, the politician. But the other thing was Marxism, which was very important in the construction of New Labour. And Marxism said that truth or rule of law, all these things, is just a bourgeois construct. Uh, and you could see all of these being these things being applied. So yes, now we need to uh, try and fight for truth. But it's, it's I'm irritated that only now, with the rise of Trump, have we got the liberal media getting anguished about the fact that politicians lie. This has been going on for twelve years. The, the, the new epistemology was created by by Blair and Clinton, basically. And then, uh, well, Nixon surely plays. No, yes, but there were yeah, but that, funnily enough, we, there was a culture then that you challenged lies. So Nixon was brought down because of what he did. The, the Woodward and Bernstein were not complicit. The culture of journalism in those days was strong enough 
that Woodward and Bernstein were able to go ahead and win that battle. But I don't know. I don't know enough about that particular. But the I mean, the Telegraph, when, when we were both there, published MPs' expenses. It was a glorious moment, very hopeful, a glorious moment, and I don't think any other paper would have done it. That it was edited by. Well, it was edited. Who was, the hell was the editor then? It was uh, Will Lewis. It was, it was edited by Will Lewis, but the person who was responsible was Tony, well, for, for driving the journalism, was, was Tony Gallagher, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, I, I think so. What, the, the British media in the early years of the last cent, this century were complicit. They were joined in. They were courtiers at the court of lie, liars. Yeah, that, that's what changed. And they... By doing that, they destroyed public faith in political institutions and also the media, which was seen as simply a part of this racket, this corrupt racket, and created the conditions for imposters like Trump to emerge. So now we're reaping the whirlwind? Yes. What have you been wrong about? Oh, yeah, let me, I mean, lots of things. Let me just uh, work out the things I've been wrong about. I, I mean, obviously I w- your predictions about cricket scores uh, will we'll 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 start. I was wrong... I, I was wrong about John Major. I was the whole lobby was into minimum into making poor John Major a an idiot, a liar, a sleazebag, um, and incompetent. Actually, history I think would be he wasn't a great prime minister. Be much better than I wasn't nearly courageous enough about Iraq. I never wrote in favour of it, but I never had the guts to really write write against it. Um, there was a, such a powerful consensus of everybody I was with in favour of it that I, I thought to my, I, I really thought about this. Why didn't I write write more strongly against it? I had to take, to, I had to really understand the issues, to, and I had therefore to take lots of time out to go away and understand the issues around the Iraq War, and I never did. And also, also, there's that aura around the intelligence community, isn't there? Uh, you thought that MI6 wouldn't um, pull one over you and ultimately you thought the British establishment wouldn't I mean the Prime Minister what you thought was a man ultimately of honesty but even so and I I never wrote in favour of it I was sceptical about it but I really wish I I should have it made me re-examine what, what my journalism was, had been about and changed me completely as a journalist because it destroyed my belief in the British establishment in in the in the uh, in, in in the intelligence services in politicians and I thought gracious me they are I was so I found the whole thing so shocking that I I just embarked on a new way of doing journalism. Thank you for listening to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor, and I hope I'll see you again next week. If you like this, please subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.